journey into the Bible and explore its hidden text and rich wisdom. Join Adol Kazilski Mondays at 1 p.m. for the trip of a lifetime. Shalom, shalom. I can feel Purim in the air. I can smell it. I can, I can hear and feel the anticipation as we are gearing up to the wonderful, wonderful, um, happy holiday of Purim, a holiday that happened oh so naturally, but in fact was oh so miraculous. And so as we start our program today, I wish everybody a Freilichen Purim. Hope everybody is getting ready for tonight. Tonight the mitzvah is to listen to the Megillah. There are many, many Megillah readings all over town. I encourage you to find a shul to go to. Um, the way you fulfill the mitzvah is to answer Amen to the blessings and to listen to every single word. And this is a mitzvah that's incumbent on man, woman, and child. And tomorrow, um, Purim Day, it is a mitzvah again to listen to the Megillah once again. Anytime during the day before sunset tomorrow, there are millions, literally, of Megillah readings around town. Um, we also have a Purim Suda. We have a festive meal where we eat and drink and uh, we celebrate the salvation that God brought upon the Jewish people. And, of course, then we do two other mitzvot. One is Matanot Le'evyonim, where we give charity to the poor. So tomorrow, please, open your hearts out even more than you do every single day and make sure that you give charity tomorrow. And lastly, Matanot Mishloach Manot, that is giving two ready-to-eat foods to one person. Many, many people do this mitzvah behidur, meaning they do it... Um, in a very, very opulent way, and they give Mishloach not more than more to one person, but you need to give at least one person, Jewish person, two edible foods, meaning you can't go give them gift vouchers or you can't go give them uh, raw pasta that they need to cook. It needs to be ready-to-eat foods. And this is an act of benevolence and kindness and a showing of unity. So these are the things that are going to be happening in the next 24 hours um, you've still got a couple of hours to prepare if you haven't. Um, not really, really difficult mitzvot to fulfill, but certainly mitzvot that are important and that really just add to the unity of the Jewish people. But we're not here to learn about Purim, though I had to say something about Purim. We're here to transverse the Bible, and we are in chapter 2 of the book of Exodus, the Pasha of Exodus, of the book, the Pasha of Shmot. We finished up last week about how essentially Moshe Rabbeinu got blown out of the water. He got discovered and he had to run away from Egypt with his life. I didn't have much time to tell you a story and there actually is, it's quite a long, long story, but I'm just going to fit it in now because it does have bearing as we move along. When Moses, when Moshe fled um, Egypt, in fact, a great big war um, broke out between the, the the people who were Cushim, that's the Ethiopians, the the the, the country of Cush, and Armia and the lands of the east. And everybody was fighting against Cush. Armia and the lands of the east were fighting against Cush. Because they were basically fighting for independence, kind of sort of like when the British, you know, had a hold on the British Empire, 
um, and then they wanted, then every country wanted to wrestle for their independence. That's what happened. Kush, Ethiopia had, um, sovereignty over most of the world and all these sovereign nations were now fighting for their independence. There was a king of Kush called Kinkos. He went to war and it was at that point in time where Bilam, that wicked Bilam, that sorcerer that went from place to place, he had fled Egypt because he thought Moshe was going to kill him because he told King Paro when he was three years old to kill Moshe and he knew that Moshe knew who he was, so he was scared of his life. He fled and he had become an advisor to the king of Cush, the guy's name Kinkos. And when Kinkos left um, to go for, to war, he made Bilam and his two sons in charge of the government. Meantime, back at the ranch, while Kinkos was going out and fighting all these sovereign nations, uh, Bilam was busy making treacherous plans and he incited all the leaders of the city of Cush to agree um, that they themselves need to dispose of Kinkos. So he carefully planned a defense of the main city, Bilam. They made two huge fortified walls on two sides of the city. On the other, they dug a broad water-filled moat. And in the fourth, they dug a deep trench with venomous snakes. So Kinkos is out to war. He's trying to fight against um, all these sovereign nations, and he comes back pretty victorious. Um, and he arrives at his city after him fighting for very long with all his troops. And he sees that no one not only will open the gate, but none of the messages to the gatekeepers um, are answered. And inside the city, the walled city now of Kush, Bilam is giving strict orders that there should be no communication with the returning king. Kinkos tries to scale the two sides there where there is, um, where there are walls, um, but they, they have the, 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 um, upper hand, the guys inside. They shoot arrows. They kill 50 of his men. They try to go to the moat. They drown there. And obviously they cannot, um, cross the, the, the deep trench that has snakes. So, they sit and they tried every which way um, to try and get in. Um, <clears throat> they cannot breach the city wall. And King Kost then just decides with his soldiers that he is going to raise a siege against the city and build another second wall around it. And in fact, he lays, sadly, a siege of nine years okay, on the people inside with Mr. Bilam and his new... Uh, government and um, that is how things are panning out now why am I telling you all of this because we're really been to be learning the book of Exodus we're learning about Moses and how he had to flee Egypt well this is where Moses comes in during the first year of the siege that's when Moshe Rabbeinu fled Egypt and he finds his way to Cush and he joined the forces of King Kinkos, and he became very, very well known um, amongst the troops as being a very, very honest guy. And they gave him a lot of respect, a lot of admiration, and um, he helped King Kinkos win all his all his uh, battles. Now he comes back. It's nine years, and. Um, 
He's sitting outside the city along with King Kos and his men. But nine years after the siege began, suddenly um, King King Kos becomes very sick. He remains ill for a couple of days and he dies. Um, and soon after the, his death, his officers have a meeting. They're very, very frustrated. All their wives and children are sitting on the other side. And that wretched Bilam and his uh, now fancy government are running there and they, they cannot get in. And they don't know what to do. They, they're worried about their children. They're worried if they're going to get attacked in the field. They don't know what to do. They feel very helpless. And they come to the conclusion that they themselves must appoint a new king. But who would they appoint? Well, after nine years of incredible service in the army of King Kos, they decide that who else but Moses is the most appropriate man to 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 be voted in. And so they make a a vote. Everybody votes for him. They create a huge platform. They place Moses on a royal throne. They sound the trumpets. They shout, long live the king, long live the king. Each of the officers of the army pass by Moses, each of them giving him gifts of gold and silver, etc., etc., and they appoint Moshe king. He, however, is a king of the Cushite troops outside the city of Cush. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. So on the seventh day, of Moses being Moshe being placed upon the royal throne. Um, the Kushite troops all assemble. They bow down in front of Moshe and they say, Your Majesty, you have to find a way for us. For nine years we have been kept out of our city. We have no life out here. You have to come to a solution. And Moshe Rabbeinu replies, I, ha- I do have a plan, okay, but it requires that you obey my orders without question. And if you do, I can assure you that you will vanquish your enemies, you'll return to your homes. Um, and by the way, I'm not advising another attack on the city because the late King Kinkos was an expert strategist. And if he couldn't reach the city, it's impossible. So he says, I've got a, a simpler plan. But before I reveal the plan, I need everybody to promise me that they are going to follow every step. I say, and they were, the guys were so desperate, they went, we do, we do, we do. So this is what Moses told them. He said, every man should go into the forest and look for storks' nests. And when they found the nest, they should take the fledging storks and uh, distribute them amongst each man until every, every single troop, every single soldier had a stork. Anybody who did not have a stork he had not listened to what Moses was saying was punished and put to death. So Remember, they promised they wouldn't ask any questions. They didn't. They went through the forests. They came back with storks. They had a tremendous flock. And now Moses says to them all, you've all done a good job. Now divide them amongst each person and every man must raise his stork. He must train the stork to do their bidding because they are young storks. So each man began the training process. Um, the storks learned to, to fly. The men trained them to dive, to swoop on prey at their command, to rest on their soldiers when they marched into battle. So they spent some time doing that. When Moses was sufficiently happy about that, he said, we're ready to now attack. Go put on your armor, put on your weapons, get your horses ready. But most importantly, the most important thing, don't give your storks anything to eat. For three 
days. On the third day, Moshe led the troops to the side of the city where there was that trench. Remember I told you, full of snakes. Every man had his trained stork sitting on his shoulder. And at Moshe's command, he told his each man to lift his stork up on his hand and tell it to go down and attack the snakes. Well, the storks were very, very hungry. So the hungry storks took little time to kill all the snakes and eat them all up. Okay, and they had, if anybody knows, they have long beaks, right? So they could attack the, they could attack the snakes with not, 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 and they didn't have to have any fear of being bitten. And within a short, short time, not a single snake remained. They then sounded the trumpet and an attack was mounted against the now undefended part of the city. They easily crossed the trench and they took the city. 1100 of Bilam's Men were captured, executed, um, and that was that. There you go now. Here, Bilam is watching this, and he can see Moses has got the upper hand again. And in scaredy cat mode, as he normally is, Bilam, his two sons, and eight brothers make their escape. And where do they escape back to? Back to Egypt. We're going to meet Bilam again in Egypt. We keep on meeting Bilam all over the place. Well, Moshe became a very, very popular king. He restored the city to the troops. He was a national hero. There was an elaborate coronation ceremony. Um, he was given a young widow, the young widow of Kinkos as a wife, though because she was a Canaanite woman, the Midrash tells us that he never, ever married her properly or was intimate with her. But now that everybody heard that Kinkos died, the tribes of Syria in the east again rebelled. Um, Moshe had to assemble 30,000 well-armed troops. He marched against them again, um, and again he managed to squash the rebellion. And this is how Moshe then returned to Cush, and he ruled in peace for a matter of 40 years. The only person that was really unhappy about this entire situation was the queen who went to – this is the widow of King Kinkos – she went to the Supreme Council of Kush and said, what have you done to me? Everyone considers me the royal queen. The king doesn't even touch me. No one believe, uh, he doesn't believe in any of our gods. Surely we should have a king um, who has the same religion as his subjects. Blah, 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 blah. I have a son, um, and he should really, he's the right heir to the throne. And before you know it, after much pushing as political manipulation happens today, they decided to... Get rid of Moshe. So they went and approached Moshe. They explained the situation. They gave him many gifts. They sent him off with great honor, um, befitting a former king. And Moshe moved on, left Cush, and he now comes to the land of Midian. Now, none of this was written in the Chumash. This is written in the Midrash, the Agadic uh, side of the Torah. And I'm telling you all of this because now we're going to follow in. Um, and we've just filled in the gap from the time he ran away um, till the time he comes to Midian because there's a huge gap there of, of something like 60 years. Right, let's look in chapter 2, verse 16. Ulekohen Midian Sheva Banot. The priest of Midian um, at that time had seven daughters. Vatavona Vatidlena et Tzon Avihem. 
The seven daughters of the priest of Midian would come every single day and draw water and fill troughs and water their father's sheep. Now, just for context, the verse 15 finished on, Vayeshev Be'er, it's Midian, Vayeshev el Be'er. He came to settle in the land of Midian and he settled near the well. So now we are coming to kind of like bringing it into the present time of the story of, of, of the verses. And Moshe is sitting by the well and um, we are going to find out what happens. Now, wells are always very, very significant things in the lives of our forefathers. And we are going to see that Moshe actually finds his wife, Zipporah, here by the well. And this was based on the fact that, if you recall, back down in history, back down in the Chumash, Eliezer went to fetch a wife for Isaac, Rivka. She was found by the well. We know that Yaakov met Rivka by a well. Um, sorry, Yitzhak met Rivka. By, uh, let me say that again. Eliezer had a wife for Yitzhak, Rivka. She was um, met at a well. Uh, Yaakov met Rachel by a well, Rachel by a well. And now Moshe is going to find his wife, Zipporah, by a well. Now let's just find out who was this priest of Midian. Well, you know, it's quite convoluted because this character comes up a lot also. It was none other than Yitro. Yitro being one of Pharaoh's chief advisors. He was considered one of the greatest occults of all time, but he had to flee, if you remember, when he was in the house of uh, Paro, and he was giving advice that was really contrary to um, to what Paro wanted to hear. He ran away, and he was found in Midian. So he was well known when he came to Midian because his knowledge of all the occult practices of Egypt um, were known to him. He had a very, very strong advantage over any of the other local priests that lived in Midian. And they eventually chose him and elected him to be the, the high priest of Midian. So that's who Yitro was. But something else changed with Yitro when he arrived in Midian. He already was showing uh, smatterings of not believing in everything in Egypt. And that's why his advice to Pharaoh all the time for the Jewish people was much kinder than Bilam or, um, or, or Job, if you recall. But now that he was in, in Midian, the more he tried to delve into the science of the occult, the more he came to realize that the idolatrous practices that accompanied all these rituals were just, they were just superstitions that worshiping wood and statues was absolute nonsense. And as an honest position, he went and said, I, I have to, I have to resign from my position. Okay? I have to resign from my position because I don't believe in any of this anymore. So he goes and he tells them, he goes and he tells them this and, um, they get really, really angry with him and they say, okay, you can, you can, you can leave. Um, we don't want you anymore. Um, we can stick you into retirement, relinquish your position, but the other priests in Midian were really, really weary of Yitro. So they not only allowed him to relinquish his position, they took away all the gold and silver dedicated to the temple out of his control. They, um, 
started telling people that Yitro was a good for nothing. And before long, poor old Yitro landed up not being, not even managing to find someone to clean his house or do chores for him. He became like pretty poor, um, an outcast in society, him and his daughters, and they became the nebachs of society. So he had to earn a living. How could he earn a living? Well, in those days, the easiest thing to do was to become a shepherd. So got himself some sheep, but there was another caveat in that Yitro was already too old to tend the sheep himself. Um, so he had no choice and he had no sons, but now to get his daughters to um, look after the, the sheep. So his daughters became his shepherds. He had seven daughters, and what they would do is they would take the sheep out early every day. They would come to the well long before the other shepherds, and when they came to the well, they commutatively, with their, their commutative strength, they would draw water by themselves, fill the troughs, water the sheep, um, and then they would hurry and finish quickly before the other shepherds came. Um, because they were, they were quite a bullied family now, um, around and, um, it, it was quite unpleasant. So this is where we see verse 16 saying that they would come, draw water, fill the troughs and water, fill the troughs and water their father's sheep. But because of this entire incident of Yitro relinquishing his position and being shunned by society, verse 17 says, haroim, the other shepherds would come, gashum, they would drive them away. Okay, they, they were pretty nasty to them. So that's why they always tried to do it before everybody else came. And yeah, Moshe Rabbeinu is sitting there and he's watching. And so the verse 17 tells us, Vayaka Moshe, Moshe got up, Vayoshian, and he rescued them, Vayashketsonam, and he watered their sheep. So really what happened was they were, a, they, they came late that one particular day. The shepherds saw them. And in fact, they tried to rape the girls. Okay, the girls started screaming, they started shouting. That was the day that Moshe was coming from Midian, to Midian from Cush, and he was resting not far from the well. And when he heard the screaming and the shouting, he realized the girls were being attacked. What happened was that he had Ruach HaKodesh. Moshe, as with other incidents, he knew the reason why they were being attacked was because their father had abandoned the local idolatrous practices. So he immediately jumped to his feet. He pulled the girls um, out of the well. Apparently, they threw them into the well. Okay. Uh, they th- he pulled them out of the well. He helped dry themselves off. He drew water, and he gave their sheep um, their sheep water and he tried to make peace between the shepherds that were sitting in Midian and their, and the daughters of, of Yitro by also watering their sheep, the shepherds sheep, the, 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 the guys from Midian. And he tried to broker a little bit of a peace treaty. So here again, you see it's very, very similar to what Yaakov did when he was at the well with his um, with with Rachel, right? He managed to move move the well, the that stone, off the well single handedly. 
So you just can imagine the, the, the surprise of the daughters of Yitro. So let's look in verse 18. V'tavona el Reuel. They come to their father Reuel. Reuel avihem. Vayomer madu'ay mihartem bo hayom. He says to them, hey, why did it take so quick for you today? So the first thing we've got to notice is that Yitro is not called Yitro. He is called Reuel. Now, he adopted a new name once he abandoned idolatry and he began serving God. What does Reuel mean? Reuel means a friend of God. Reuel, a friend of God. By the way, Yitro had six other names. He was best known as Yitro, but I'm going to keep all his names and his discussions. When we get to the Parsha of Yitro, which is further down the line, after the giving of the Torah, Yitro comes to join Moshe in the, in, in the desert, and he actually helps Moshe set up judicial council and how the courts of law should work. But we'll leave that for now. Right now, we know he's got two names, Yitro and Reuel, even though he really had six. So, Yitro was very surprised his daughter had come back so early. Um, he knows that they normally would spend the rest of the day grazing the sheep, but they came back so agitated by the um, promiscuity or desired promiscuity of the shepherds of Midian and their eventual savior by some strange man, they were very, very anxious to tell their father about this mysterious stranger who had rescued them. So when he says to them, why did you rush to come home? What happened? But Tomarna, they said, Ishmitri Hitzilano, an Egyptian man saved us miyad haroim from the hands of the shepherds. Vigam dalo dala lanu. He also drew water for us. Vayashk etatzon. He also watered the sheep. So just like um, we have um, Rivka coming and telling um, her father. Betuel and, 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 and Laban and Betuel, her brother, about Eliezer. We have now the same story where the daughters of Midian are running home and telling Yetro that in fact they had met this Egyptian man and not only did he save them from the terrible uh, behavior of the shepherds, but they were in fact, um, he, that he in fact watered all the sheep. We're going to take a little bit of a break and we're going to go and see why, in fact, they decided to call Moshe an Egyptian man. This is 101.9 High FM. High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Okay, why did they call Moshe an Egyptian man? Well, some say he was still wearing Egyptian clothing, even though he had just come back from Cush, and he had been king, he was wearing Egyptian clothing. Uh, some sages interpret the expression in a somewhat different manner. They're saying, what does it mean he called him an Egyptian man? So the, the parable they give is, a man is bitten by a wasp, and he runs to the river to cool off the stinging bite. And arriving at the river, he sees a child drowning, and he saves the child. The child says to the man, if not for you, I would have drowned. And the man replies, if not for the wasp, I wouldn't have been here to save you. Right? So when they say an Egyptian man saved us, 
what in fact they were saying in the parable, parable is that Moshe was saying, don't thank me for saving you. Thank the Egyptian whom I killed, for if not for him, I wouldn't be here. Now, this is a very, very powerful lesson. You know, we're always looking out for miracles, and perhaps we can tie it back now to the story of Purim. It seemed in the story of Purim at all times, and even in the entire Megillah of Purim, God's name is not mentioned once. It reads like a good novel, well thought out, full of plots and counterplots, and things just happened naturally. Esther becomes queen only because Vashti landed up with a skin issue, right? And she didn't want to present herself before the king, and because of a disrespect, he beheaded her. It seems that Mordechai becomes part of the king's chamber because he happened to hear two people wanting to plot the king, and he was put into a uh, a book of remembrance, it happens that Haman is second to the king and he's wanting to kill the Jewish people and he plots against the Jewish people. It just happens because now Mordechai is part of the judicial council there. He hears about the plot to of Haman and he, it happens that, that, that Esther happens to be queen. And so the entire story unfolds as everybody knows the story of Purim. And it just seems that there were right people at the right place, that the right things happened at the right time and all of that um construed to allow Esther to go and beg for her life by the by at King Achashverosh and bring down Haman. That is why, by the way, we land up dressing up on Purim. It is not, God forbid, um, a Halloween party. The reason why we dress up is because life isn't always what it seems. There are hidden things. There are masks. We all wear masks. We, we all... Uh, you know, have a certain um, face that we show the world. And sometimes then in the dark of night, in the privacy of our homes, maybe to certain early certain relationships, we will be somebody completely different. Well, that is really um, what what we do on Purim, is that we remember that God is, in fact, running the entire world all the time. And it was not by mistake that Esther happened to become queen. It was not by mistake that Mordechai happened to have heard the story um, of the plotting to assassinate the king. It didn't happen that Haman came around. It all happened and was put together and orchestrated by God. And so Purim tells us that life is one big miracle. One big miracle. And that each and every single day of our lives we are being looked after by God and we are being put in the right time, in the right place. Sometimes a painful place, yes. Sometimes a very uncomfortable, horrible place that we don't want to be in, yes. But we are there because Hashem has orchestrated it. And this is really what this verse in Chumash is coming to teach us when she said an Egyptian man, had he not killed the Egyptian man, he wouldn't have come to save them. Had the guy not been bitten by the wasp, he wouldn't have been able to save the guy that drowned. But God caused you to be bitten by the wasp in order that you should, you should, uh, what's the name? You should, you, 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 you should be there to save somebody else. So let's take this lesson to heart. If there is a lesson about Purim, a lesson that we're learning in the Chumash right now is that ladies and gentlemen, God is running the world. 
He's running the war in Ukraine. He's running the, the, the political unrest. He's running the, 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 all the not nice things that we see, the load shedding, etc. Everything has its time and its place. Do we understand it? No. But a source of comfort and a source of the easing of anxiety is to say, this is what Hashem wants right now. Once right now, what can I do to make the best of the situation that I find myself in? Verse 20, Vayomer, so he says, Yitro says, El Benotav to his wife, Ve'eyo ish. How could you, so where is he? How could you have left him? How could you have abandoned him? Kirin law, call him, Ve'yuchal lachem, and let him break bread. Okay, he was completely intrigued about about uh, this thoughtfulness of Moshe Rabbeinu, and he knew that not too many people of his time were as unselfish as Moshe had behaved. Okay, and he was even more intrigued because he did not yet know that Moshe was in fact a Hebrew, and um, he thought he was an Egyptian. So he said, "Come, let's break bread." Because as it says in Kohelet, you cast your bread upon the waters and after many days you find it. How do you find out something about somebody? Just invite them for a meal and let them talk. Moshe um, was um, enticed to live with um, the man, with Yitro. Um, Yitro gave his wife Moshe to um, his, his daughter Yit. Ah, his daughter Tzipporah to Moshe as a wife. Now, Moshe, when he came, was 67 years old. And Moshe told Yitro the story of his life, how Pharaoh wanted to kill him, how he was the king of Cush for 40 years, how he was finally disposed as, uh, disposed as a king. And Yitro was listening to this entire story and he thought to himself, nah, I can't buy everything because this guy must have done something terrible to be deposed from the throne, throne of Cush. So he decided to be careful. And what he did is he threw Moshe into prison and he said, don't give him food or water. What a nice future father-in-law. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? You know how long Moshe spent there? Ten years. He spent ten years in prison. Okay, and he would have died, he would have starved, except for who? The kindness of one of Jethro's daughters by the name of Tzipporah. She had pity on Moshe and she would secretly bring him food and water every day and that's how he survived. Ten whole years, out of sight, out of mind, to his father-in-law, Yitro. One day, Tzipporah came to her father and she said to him, do you remember that stranger you put in prison ten years ago? Do you know? Do you even care if he's alive or dead? So Yitro said, what should I care? He's been in the dungeon now 10 years with no food, no water. Surely he's dead. Well, you never know, said Sipora, because I heard that um, he is a Hebrew, and the God of the Hebrews has great power and that does miracle. We all know about how Abraham was saved from the fiery furnace. We know how there was a Hebrew who was placed in the river as an infinite and was saved by God. Okay, we know about a Hebrew where Pharaoh tried to decapitate him and his neck turned into marble. You know, if this guy's a Hebrew and he's got the Hebrew God behind him, ah, I'd be wary. Well, Yitro got a bit nervous, so he sent his men to examine Moshe's cell. And lo and behold, when they opened the cell door, there was Moshe, alive and well, standing in prayer before God. They took him out of prison. They gave him fresh new clothes. 
and they brought him to, to Jethro's house and everyone, including Yitro, was astonished to see him. Now, I gotta tell you a story about Moshe's staff. You know, we're going to learn a lot about Moshe's staff. It turns into a snake, it splits the sea, he carries it up Har Sinai. How did he get his hands on a staff? Well, there once was a, once upon a time, there was a staff that was created at the twilight of creation. And Adam received it when he was in the garden of Eden. When he died, he gave it to Hanoch who then gave it to Noach's son, Shame. Shame gave this staff to Abraham. It went there from Abraham to Yitzhak to Yaakov. When um, Yaakov emigrated to Egypt, he brought the staff along and he willed it to Yosef. When Yosef died, Pharaoh at that time appropriated the staff along with a lot of the rest of Joseph's belongings and he kept it in his treasure house. Now you're going to hang on because this is 101.9 High FM and we're going for a wee little break so that I can finish the story. High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Okay, let's finish up the story quickly. Now this fantastical staff is in the possession of Pharaoh. Yitro, when he was a member of the, of, 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 uh, Paris court is aware of it and he wants it Greatly, He sees there are miraculous things about it. It's made of sapphire. So when he, when he, Yitro, runs away from Egypt, he takes the staff with him, using all his great occult powers to get it past the treasury guards. And when he comes to Midian, what he does is he plants it in the middle of a garden in a manner that nobody else could uproot it. And he makes a promise, and he says, any man who could pull the staff out of the ground can have his most beautiful daughter who happened to be Sipora. Many, many men in Midian came in vain and tried to pull up the staff. One day after Moshe is freed, he notices this staff. He notices it has strange writing on it and he immediately recognizes it Hebrew letters. And he recognizes that in fact these Hebrew letters are one of God's mystical names. He looks better, he looks, he looks at it, he takes hold of it, and before you know it, boom, it came out of the ground. And he brings the staff to Jethro, to Yitro, and now is when Yitro recognizes that this Moshe is no ordinary man. Not only did he survive 10 years imprisonment, but in fact, he must be a holy man. So he takes time to get to know Moshe. The more he spoke to him, the more he liked him, and he gives Tzipporah as his wife. We're told that Zipporah was a God-fearing woman and she followed the pious tradition of Sarah, Rivka, Rachel and Leah and um, at the wedding Yitro extracts one promise from Moshe and that is, I know the story of her great-grandfather Yaakov he married two of his loved daughters and he suddenly ran away without even taking leave. I'm afraid you're going to do the same. You have to swear to me you will not go away without my permission Keep that as a note because, in fact, when he has to leave, he has to go back and ask Yitro permission. Last verse, Vatelet Ben, he gives birth to a son, Vayikra Shemor Gershom, he calls his son Gershom, Ki Amar, because he says, Ger Hayiti Be'eretz Nochria, that I am a foreigner in a foreign land. Ger comes from the word, Gershom comes from the word Ger, 
which means a foreigner in a foreign land. He later does have another son, Eliezer. We'll speak about it later. Um, but until this time, no male children had been born into Yitro's family because he only had daughters, and this was the first male. And with that, time is up, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Happy, happy week ahead. A freilich and Purim to everybody. And I'll be back same time, same place next week. Shavuot Tov.